Friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. Becky, thank you for reciting this passage so well. That was a blessing. Folks, we are continuing through this very practical section of Peter's letter this morning. We, we are currently addressing the, the, the different household codes or, or the authority structures of that day, both the good and the bad. Peter continues to, to instruct these young Christians on, on how to act in a way that is first of all, consistent with God's word and God's design for their lives, and then second of all, that that is not needlessly divisive towards the culture around them. And this morning, we are looking at verses 1 to 6 and the bold call for wives to submit to their husbands. And so let's begin by reading these six verses together, and then we will study them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Today, today, March 8th, is International Women's Day. A day that is set aside by many throughout the world to celebrate and to fight for the equality of women throughout the world. It's a a globally recognized day committed to celebrating the the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. And, And it's also used to accelerate women's equality throughout the world. I promise that I did not know that today was International Women's Day when I scheduled the preaching series in this way. This is just a strange providence of God. But I actually love that it is today. Looking at verses 1 to 6, which speak of wives submitting to their husbands, is actually going to be helped by it being International Women's Day. And I love this because this allows us to make some really clear statements about how we agree with International Women's Day. We see women as equal. We see women as deserving the same respect as men and to be given the same treatment and opportunity as men. Absolutely. Yes and amen. As the church, we should seek to contribute to a shift in the cultural thinking. We as the church, more than anyone, should fight for the equality of women. We should fight for women to be given the respect that they deserve and to be heard on all matters in life. The church should be on the front line of so many of these things because as we're going to see today, our Bibles say these things. Women are equally made in the image of God 
equally loved by God, equally cherished by God, equally equipped to live strong and courageous lives for God's glory. We believe all of that, and so we should participate in this fight whenever and however we can. But even as I say that, I am pretty sure that many of those in our culture who are celebrating this day might choke on some of the words that we're going to study from 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands. For many in, in our culture, in our culture that is rightly set on liberating women from wrongful oppression, words like this seem to heighten and even worsen the situation rather than solve or fix the situation. Many might even say that words like this in the Bible are at the very center of the problem. But friends, we do not believe that that is true. We believe that we can resonate with almost everything that International Women's Day stands for, and we can fight for these things by their side, even while we see words like this in God's Word and seek to understand and value and apply them for the good and wise counsel that they are. And so, as complicated and even, honestly, as volatile as it might be in our day and age, we want to study these words today together because we believe they are for us from our faithful God. We see, want to seek to understand what he intends for us through these words. If you're a woman here this morning, we've been praying that you would feel God's favor and blessing and his gracious and good call upon your life this morning and that you would feel envisioned to live heroic lives for his glory. I have been praying that through this message that you would be refreshed this morning rather than in any way frustrated or hurt or offended. And I believe that is very possible. Here's the main idea of the text this morning. Women who value submission because of respect towards God, have imperishable beauty and heroic courage. Let me say that again. Women who value submission because of respect toward God have imperishable beauty and heroic courage. I have three points for us to consider. Point number one, a word about context. Point number two, a word about beauty and modesty. Point number three, a word about complementarianism. Okay, let's look at these one at a time. Beginning with the first, a word about context. Verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, submit to your own husbands. And friends, as we consider this together, we must acknowledge the context that Peter is writing in and the broader purpose of what he is doing here. First of all, it's important in, in a single message like this that we don't think that Peter is simply focusing on women in isolation to the exclusion of everyone else. He's absolutely not. He's already spoken about our relationship to government. He's already spoken about the boss and employee relationship. And next week, he's going to speak directly to men and to husbands and their call to sacrificially serve their wives. And so the costliness of following God is laid not just on women here, but on all of us together. And not only is it laid on all of us together, but it's important to notice that what he says here in the context flows directly out of the gospel of grace, right? I mean, last week we saw those amazing verses at the end of chapter 2, which highlight the example of Jesus himself. 
Jesus, the very Son of God, who, who first walked in humble submission before the Father in order to care for us as we were wandering like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, as we, as we talk about submission, we have to ground it, first of all, in the context of the gospel. We follow the example of Christ himself in these things. The one who willingly chose to submit, which is what true submission is. True submission is not forced on someone. When, it, when it's forced, it's no longer submission. It's subjugation. True submission is done willingly and through humility for the sake of others, just as we see in the example of Christ. That's part of the context here. But now, it's also important to notice what Peter is doing in the historical context of that day. We have to remember the purpose of this section of his letter to these original readers. And so just as we saw last week, right, when, when Peter instructed servants to be subject to their masters, Peter again here is concerned about how these new Christians, these, these new converts, might take the new identity that they have been given in Jesus and in some ways misapply it to their lives and to the culture around them. Do you remember how we talked about this just last week? We, we acknowledged together that Peter has said some, some truly extraordinary things about who we are. He has looked at his original readers and he has looked at you and me and he has said, you're a chosen race. You, you are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Church, let yourself sit in that for a few moments. Those are extraordinary things spoken over you by God himself. But Peter knows that it would be very easy for the Christians in his day and for us here today to take those things and to misapply them to our lives and to our culture. Like if we're a chosen race, well, then we could say, let's push off all other forms of authority. Let's push off government. Let's push off our bosses. Let's push off the structures within the home. But Peter doesn't want that to happen. Rather, he wants us to apply these things in a very balanced and in a thoroughly biblical sort of way. He wants us as the people of God to be refined by the word of God and to be conformed to God's will and his design for our lives. And he knows that that does not necessarily mean that we follow our instincts and just begin to push off everything that's uncomfortable or that doesn't come easily to us. Clarity is needed here. And listen, this clarity is probably needed, and it was probably needed to be spoken into in no area as much as in the area of the home, and the roles within the home. Now, sure, Peter needed to temper these young Christians from being anarchists and how they might have wanted to, to rebel against the authority of the government and against the authority of their bosses. Absolutely, he's already spoken to that. But listen, as I study these things, I don't think that there is any area of life in that first century context that would have demanded clarity on these things more than the relationship of husbands and wives in the home. Now, why? why? Why would I say that? Well, because I am not sure there was any area of life in that day that young Christians would have wanted to be liberated from more than wives in connection to their husbands and to men in general. The, the view of women in that day, it was horrific. It is so sad, it's so sorrowful to read about how women were treated in that day. 
Now listen, one, one of the loudest critiques of Christianity, one of the loudest critiques of the church today is that we don't value women, that we minimize the value of women in the, in the world and in the church. But historically and, and biblically, that's actually far from true. Christianity has historically redeemed the value of women from cultures that demean and objectify women. And why is that? Simply because this is God's design. God values women. He cherishes women. He equips women to live strong and courageous and influential lives for his glory. But that was not the perspective that many had of women in the first century. Women in the first century were seen as second-class citizens. And that's putting it nicely, folks. They they were not to be spoken to in public. They, They were not eligible to testify on legal matters in the court system. The Talmud, a historical legal document, says this, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. And that's how they were viewed in public. It was even worse in the home. To, to be a wife was to be controlled by and subjugated to your husband's whims and desires. You, you were not even supposed to have your own network of friendships or relationships as a wife. It wasn't allowed. And it was certainly true that the wife was supposed to follow their husband in all religious matters. Whatever gods the husband worshipped, the the wife was supposed to worship as well. The Greek historian Plutarch, who lived in the first century, said this, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. He said, The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. Friends, outside of the church, the view of women was, it was very dismal. It was very low. And so, and so, do do you see how what Peter does here actually validates, actually promotes, actually liberates women? We can see it in a few ways. First of all, it's it's actually amazing. It's it's almost shocking that Peter even speaks to women in this letter. Why is that shocking? Well, because in that day, that would have been unheard of. Traditional rabbis or philosophers or teachers in that day would have only directed their instruction to men. They would have never spoken to the women directly. They might have spoken about them and about how they believe they should live in this world, but they would not have validated women by speaking directly to them. But yet Peter does, and that should stand out to us. It speaks of his valuing of these sisters. The second thing that we notice, and that is amazing here, is that Peter does not tell these women to just go home and to follow their husbands in whatever they believe. Peter legitimizes the reality that that women were coming gloriously to faith in Jesus Christ apart from their unbelieving husbands. And he was not telling them, just go back home and worship only the gods that your husbands worship. Listen, that would have been shocking in that day. It would have been shocking to the culture around them. This is one of the primary ways that that while Peter is is still in support of some of the authority structures, which aren't given by the culture, but are given by God himself, while he's not afraid of that, he's also not afraid to undermine the social norms of that day. He's, He's not afraid to speak directly against the cultural expectations that his readers were in. Now listen, we don't need to limit our consideration of these things only to 1 Peter. The reality is, is that women are honored. 
and women are loved and esteemed. And women are valued and promoted everywhere in your Bibles. Last, last year we saw in the study of the Gospel of Mark how amazing it was that Mark regularly referenced the women disciples of Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 says, there, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then just a few verses later in Mark chapter 16, Mark highlights that it was women who found Jesus' empty tomb and became the first witnesses to his resurrection. And in that day, all of those references to women was, it was a surefire way to undermine the message that you were trying to give, give credit to. But the writers of Scripture are never bashful about the beautiful role that women play in God's story of redemption. Why? Because God is not bashful about it. Women are made in his image, cherished by him, and equipped to do extraordinary things for his glory. The Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament references strong women like Phoebe and Prisca and Junia, women who had significant roles of service, and some would say, dare I say it, even leadership in the church through the diaconal position. Women are present in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The the book of Judges highlights the the skillful leadership of women in times of crises for, for Israel. The list goes on and on and on. Women are esteemed everywhere in your Bible. So back to the text. What Peter does here in the context is actually remarkable and beautiful. This is not subjugation of women, but rather a liberation of women. This is not a text that that should lead women to feel like they are inferior in any way, but rather a text that should embolden women to fulfill God's glorious call on their lives. This is a word about context. Now let's turn to point number two, a word about beauty and a word about modesty. Now, talk about trigger words in our culture. Submit and modesty. The, The idea of modesty is It's difficult to discuss in the church because so many people have a poor understanding of of what it is. But interestingly, Peter goes immediately from talking about the women's need to submit to their husbands into a conversation about how women are to dress. Look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, as we talk about beauty and modesty from this verse, we have to be careful that we don't put the need for greater modesty in the church only on women. Modesty is a value that should be present in all of us. Modesty certainly has implications for how we dress, but it's not as easily defined as a certain type of clothes or the length of a skirt or the depth of a neckline. Men and women alike need to think about modesty in their lives by by regularly asking the question, do we present ourselves? Do we present ourselves in how we dress, through our possessions, even through our words? Do we present ourselves in a way that is trying to draw attention to ourselves? Or are we able to live in such a way that uses who we are and what we have and how we dress to promote God's activity in our lives? That's what modesty is about. 
A biblical understanding of modesty means that it's possible, very possible, to have a woman who might not be perceived as dressing modestly, according to the traditional church standards, but whose heart is more modest before the Lord than the guy next to her dressed in a suit and tie, but who can't stop talking about himself. That that dude likely struggles with modesty more than she ever will. So so we need to think about modesty in as, as biblical a way as possible. Now, it's not that that modesty in how we dress is not important. It very much is, and we should have practical conversations about it. But but how we dress and how we act is, first of all, an indicator of where our hearts are at. And that is what matters most to God. And so listen, what is is Peter specifically doing here? Well, well, he's charging, he's exhorting these, these new Christian ladies to conduct themselves in as humble a way as possible. As new converts in that culture, as new Christians with with new faith and a new identity, it would have been very easy for these young Christian ladies to begin to try to make a life for themselves outside of the home and outside of their marriages. And so think about that with me. If it was the culture in that day that the woman was almost never to leave the home, and when they did, they were not even to be spoken to, How shocking would it have been for the watching world to see these women suddenly possessing a faith that was their own and that was distinct from their husbands and different from their husbands and even to go to church outside of the home apart from their husbands. That would have been scandalous in that day. And so listen, how much more scandalous if they went out to church and went out elsewhere dressed to impress dressed to draw attention to themselves. That that would have been perceived by their unbelieving husbands and by the culture as as being more about them and their liberation from the social norms than about simple faith and love for Jesus and a desire to live for his glory. It would have made their profession of faith more about them than about Jesus. And that would have needlessly increased people's hostility towards the church and to this new religion called Christianity. Here's the principle that Peter is trying to communicate to us. It is a truly beautiful thing to not take all of the freedom that is available to you in order to sacrificially love those around you. It is truly beautiful to not adorn yourself in all the ways that you could, both men and women, in order to adorn the grace of God, which is greater and more important than yourself. That's what Peter is exhorting these wives to do. Is is there something inherently wrong or sinful about braiding your hair or wearing gold jewelry? No, not at all, of course not. But to do so in a way that needlessly draws people's eyes off of the beauty of God's grace and puts their eyes on us, well, that's that's not good. And so Peter says that there's something imperishably beautiful about these women who who do not demand to live out their newfound freedom in Jesus in all the ways that they rightly could, but who choose to live out a gentle and quiet and humble spirit. Why is this imperishably beautiful? Not because jewelry is bad, but because humility before God for the sake of others is so good. Friends, please notice Please notice how tightly this exhortation to wives is tied to the example of Jesus himself. 
The last four verses of chapter 2 are about the example of Jesus, who is the first and foremost example of someone who does not demand to live out all of his freedom as he possibly could, but chooses to go without. He chooses to walk the road of humility. He chooses to give of himself in order to adorn the grace of God more beautifully. Listen, the eternal Son of God, clothed in rainbows of living color, clothed in heavenly righteousness, he clothed himself in humanity. Why? In order to make a way for us to know and experience the grace of God. That's glorious. Ladies when, and men, when you walk through life in this world in a way that is not about your own freedoms, not about your own rights, not about your own power and how to wield it in all the ways that you possibly could, not about your abilities, and there are many, but you choose rather to clothe yourself in humility and to honor the Lord through valuing his good design for your life, which again, by the way, is not just to call upon women, but upon all of God's people. When you do that, you're not choosing a lesser path. You are choosing a path that flows directly from the example of Christ himself. And it's a path that God intends to use to bring him great glory and great praise and to even save lost souls to himself. Women who value submission because of respect toward God are imperishably beautiful and heroically courageous. You know, I think think that many women in the church misinterpret the Bible They misinterpret the Bible when they think that because they are to submit to their husbands in some ways, that they are in some way inferior to their husbands. They think that submission means lesser in worth, lesser in value, but that is not at all true. In fact, we see through the gospel that the exact opposite is true. He who submitted because of God's gracious plan of redemption, he, Jesus, is the one who now stands high above all things, and his beauty and his power and his glory are incomparable. Biblical submission is not a statement of lesser worth. If anything, biblical submission brings us closer to that which is of greatest worth. If you follow the example of Jesus who humbled himself for the sake of others, according to Philippians chapter 2, he is then ultimately exalted high above all other things. Humble submission is not a pathway towards an ignoble position of some kind. No, rather it is a pathway towards glory and joy and honor. There is power and glory in God's design for women in the church and in the home. And that brings us to our third and to our concluding point this morning. Point number three, a word about complementarianism. Some of you didn't even know that was a word, but it is. It's a big word, complementarianism. This is the the theological belief that while men and women are made equal in value before God, though, though they are equally loved by God, equally equipped by God, equally cherished by God, even as all of that is true, complementarianism says that men and women still have distinct roles as designed by God. The opposite idea of, of, of complementarianism is egalitarianism, which says that men and women are the same in all things and that there is no difference between them according to God's design. Here at Redeemer Fellowship, we we are complementarian. 
We believe that God has wisely called men and women to use their gifts in specific ways within the church and in the home. Now listen, this is, this is not a sermon on complementarianism. Peter's goal here is not to bring all of the theological nuances and distinctions to this topic. And so, so we can't go into every detail of this discussion. But, but there are things within this text which do point to broader biblical principles of our complementary convictions. And therefore we do well to speak of it briefly this morning. And we'll, we'll engage this even more next week in our discussion about men and their call to sacrifice for those around them. But notice a few of these points with me from the text. Notice again, verse 1, the word likewise. That word likewise connects us back to the example of Christ and back to the fear of God that we saw up in verse 17 and 18. Those who have a right fear and a right respect of God know that God has given us different roles in this world, different roles towards government, different roles in our jobs, different roles in the church, and different roles in the home. And those differing roles are given in order to express our faith in him and as a small way of reflecting who he is. We see our our complementarian values again in verse 1 when Peter says, even if some do not obey the word. So Peter is saying that that through these these wives' humility and by their example, husbands may even be one to Christ. But Peter is not saying, he says some, not all. So Peter is not saying that this submission is valuable only on an evangelistic level towards unbelieving husbands. No, there's, there's value to this submission even in the healthiest marriages, even in a home where, where both husband and wife are Christians. Why? Because this is part of God's gracious design. We, we see it even more in verses 4 and 5 when Peter says that these things are precious in God's sight and when he says that this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. In these things, Peter, Peter ties the value of what he's saying. He ties it back much farther than just to the Roman culture that he was writing to. His motivation here is tied directly into God's word. Honestly, from the very first pages of Scripture, that's where we find Abraham and Sarah, and even beyond that. Complementarianism, we believe, can be found in the very creation order of Genesis 1 to 3, when we see God create men and women in his own image and equally, an equal display of his glory, but yet he gives them clear and distinct roles and mandates to fulfill according to his word. This is according to God's design. He's he's made us this way. Let me try to make the the complementarian conversation as as simple as possible, and then we'll get into more details next week as well. Complementarianism means that God has given a specific role to men to bear a responsibility for those around them. And he has given a specific role to women to freely, willingly, joyfully affirm and follow the leadership and care that comes from that God-given responsibility. And friends, by God's design, we're able to fill these roles well and not in broken and harmful ways. One of these roles is not superior to the other. 
One of these roles is not inferior to the other. No, they, they complement one another. That's what complementarianism means. Neither of them can stand alone apart from the other. They're supposed to go together. And when they do, friends, we get a picture of God's grace in the gospel, even as Christ gave us an example. And we even get a picture of God himself. Did you realize this? In the roles of men and women in the church and in the home, according to God's design, we get a glimpse of God himself. God, the triune God. One God, but who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is unity in them despite their diversity. One God, three persons, each of them equal in power, equal in glory, equal in divinity, but who each have distinct roles and functions in the plan of redemption. The, the roles of men and women, when displayed most brightly according to God's design, are a picture of that in a small way. Isn't that amazing? This is what complementarianism is. It's beautiful. It's not needless authority. It's not abuse. It's grace for God's people. Now, now a, a few brief qualifications. One, in verse 1 again, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Complementarian roles are to be lived out within the home and, and within the church. Every woman is, is not called by God to submit to every man around here. There, there may be ways, particularly in the church, that we can reflect complementarian values in different ways, but this theological idea does not enable men to claim authority over all women in his life. Not at all. Qualification number two, submission like we saw in relation to government and in relation to our bosses and our managers at work. Submission does not mean, it never means, that we follow someone into sin. A, a wife who is married to an unbelieving husband or, or, or to even to a believing husband is called to respect, called to follow whenever and however she can. But that does not mean that she has to do whatever he says or to ever follow him into sin. No, she is first of all married to King Jesus. She is first of all a part of the bride of Christ, and Jesus gets her first allegiance and devotion, not her husband. And friends, it needs to be said that that has particular application in regard to abuse in the home and in the church. A woman is not called by God to submit to an abusive husband or church leader. That is not pleasing to God, and action should be taken to remove her from that context whenever possible, and as quickly as possible, when appropriate. Now let me just pause here and speak, not in connection to the abuse that I just spoke of, but let me, let me pause here and speak to women in this church who are married to unbelieving husbands. There are several of you here this morning, and I, I want to pause. I want to let you know that you have our respect. You have our gratitude. We love you. We thank God for you. Thank you for clinging to Jesus as you seek to, to be a source of gospel light to your unbelieving husband and family. It's glorifying your Savior. We, we know it's hard. 
We know it's costly. We know Monday through Saturday are, are difficult days to endure at times. But as we see in this text, we also know that through your humility, through your faithfulness, through your care for your husband, you are drawing him to the example of Christ. You're giving him a picture to look at and to consider the power and glory of the cross. Thank you. We're praying for you and we're praying for your husband's conversion. May it be. May God receive all the glory. Third and final qualification. We need to be faithful. We need, we need to be faithful to our complementarian convictions, but, but we have to be quick to acknowledge that the biblical roles can be abused and misused. And and sadly, there are many leaders and churches that have done a great disservice, a great harm to women by practicing their complementarian convictions in a thoroughly unbiblical, ungodly, and sinful way. It's been for them just a, a biblical way of subjugating women under their abusive authority. It's godless. It needs to be renounced. May we follow these things according to God's good design. Amen. And on that note, a brief, a brief application point on this qualification for us as the church, and specifically for us as pastors. The, the church needs to be careful to, to not miss out on the remarkable gifting and even leadership skills of women within the church. As, as pastors in particular, we need to be careful to seek to understand and to, and to teach these things well so that women can be used by God in the many ways that he's gifted and called them to be used. Now, I do strongly feel, I do strongly believe that a biblical understanding of roles is to lead many women who are married and who have children. It should lead many women to orient their care and their direction and all of their many skills towards the home. That's important. But that can happen in a number of different ways. And we shouldn't assume that it needs to look the same for all families within the church. But I also think that the church should stop communicating that that is the only way that women can fill their God-given roles. If that's the only way, then what about single women? What about women without children? What about women with grown children? We, we need women who have great ambition to lead and care for their families because honestly, moms, no one is as qualified and gifted for it as you are. And I hope and pray that you feel God's favor as you labor in that way, whatever way it looks like for you. But listen, your call is to not fill the responsibilities at home and to not have ambition for anything else. No, no you moms are called to have great ambition for God and for his church as well, as we all are. We need moms who are Bible scholars, who love God's truth, and who seek to disciple others in the truth, starting with their own children. We need single ladies who are Bible scholars. We need grandmoms who are students of the word. We, we need women who are able to be ministry team leaders and who are able to, to lead others towards faithful service in the church. We, we need women who are trained in biblical counseling and who so value truth that they're eager to bring it to bear in people's lives who are hurting and who are recovering from abuse and more. We need women who are bold. We need women who are courageous in the church. We need women who are able to come to their pastors and help us to think through how to care for and equip women better than we currently do. We need your help. 
We need all of this and more. We need it in women who aren't chafing for some leadership position or title that is not theirs to have according to God's design, but who are still heroically courageous in what they are designed to do. Amen? Friends, when these things happen, God is glorified. The gospel is magnified. And we, his people, are made very happy. John Piper says this, he says, in relation to marriage, but it applies broadly as well. This is the way God meant it to be before there was any sin in the world. Sinless man, full of love, in his tender, strong leadership in relation to woman, and sinless woman, full of love, in her joyful, responsive support for man's leadership. I love this. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman. Two intelligent, humble, God-entranced beings living out in beautiful harmony their unique and different responsibilities. That's possible in the home and that's possible in the church by God's design. May God lead us to follow his humble example of servanthood and care. And may he enable us to walk this out. Women in their gracious willingness to to submit and follow at times, and men in their radical call to sacrificially serve those around them, which we'll talk about more next week, all for the glory of God. Amen.